Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. You're a taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, the podcast that comes to you each week from the Australian National University. Now, as you would know, we've had some pretty extraordinary scholars, authors, broadcasters and politicians on Democracy Sausage over our more than 150 episodes so far but none more senior than Malcolm Turnbull, who's done most of the above and more. He's, of course, a former Prime Minister of Australia, and I'm delighted to welcome him to Democracy Sausage. Welcome, Malcolm. Hey, great, Mark. Good to be with you. Now, a bit of a uh, a sort of a broad opening question. Uh, What's harder, being Prime Minister of Australia or being ex-Prime Minister of Australia? (laughs) Well, I think think they've both got their challenges, but uh, I think uh, being Prime Minister is... Obviously, uh, a difficult job, but it's a very rewarding one too. If you, you know, if you decide to use it for uh, getting good things done. Yeah, I, I imagine you've probably been asked this a hundred times, but it's a job that you can't really understand, presumably, until you get into doing it. It's a sort of uh, there are so many dimensions and so many demands on a prime minister that. Uh, Really, only the people who do it, and perhaps chiefs of staff and those close spouses and the like, uh, have any appreciation of it. I think that's probably true. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's the uh, Annabel Crabb once described the prime minister's office as the office of wicked problems, and I think there's a lot of truth in that because if the problems are simple, someone else will have fixed them. Yeah. Uh, so you do end up with a lot of challenging things. But uh, you know, frankly, that's the that's what I like most about the job. I, I like difficult or wicked problems. I, I like problem solving. I like digging into things and working out how to how to um, you know improve things. And uh, you know that's 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 just the kind of person I am. So so the more complex and intricate the challenge, the more engaged I became in it. 
Now, of course, those watching don't understand all of those complexities, and that's one of the things I presume that all prime ministers uh, feel a level of frustration about as they get criticised by smart Alex like me, writing columns and the like, uh, analysing the way they should go forward, or you know, presenting the um, the simple path, uh, perhaps not understanding the multiple interests that a prime minister needs to balance. As an as a former prime minister. Are you also in danger of succumbing to that kind of um, clarity of vision that perhaps isn't always there for, for the person in the job? Um, I think a, I think the advantage that a former prime minister has, depending on the, you know the, their level of emotional intelligence, is that you actually can empathize with the person who is in the role. Right. So you understand the complexities of it. You understand, um, you know, the the opportunities and the pitfalls, and you know, and just that you understand the context. You know, there's a lot of people. You know, most. Um, uh, well, you know, there's a great saying. I think it was you first used in Washington. Uh, uh, those that are talking don't know, and those that know aren't talking. And very <laughs> often. The people that commentate the most uh, in the press gallery and elsewhere uh, actually have the slightest understanding of the, you know, the realities, the pressures, the the, the context in which uh, a government and a PM in particular is operating. But I guess in hindsight, there's also some truth to the simplicity, is there not? I mean, um, it's we all know when we've been in complex situations, if we look back uh, in hindsight at our uh, uh, dealing with uh, circumstances they may be in our personal life or our professional life um, and we recognise that we were overwhelmed in a sense by the number of details that we were trying to reconcile and sometimes those those sort of simple truths uh, that uh, that others can see turn out to be right as well. So Sometimes. I mean, look, uh, it depends how you operate. I mean, I you know, I got into politics... Uh, at the ripe old age of 50 after a career in journalism, initially law and business. Um, so I had a, you know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't a lifetime politician, so I approached problems with a with a, the goal of getting good policy outcomes. You know, uh, I've never believed in or pursued poli- a power for its own sake. Now, regrettably, uh Far too many people in politics are only interested in being there, so it is you know that it is genuinely power for its own sake that they pursue. Um, I uh, you know I think that's that that's just has never appealed to me. So I've always wanted to be able to get something done, and you know I I, I think you can sometimes lose sight of the wood for the trees. Sometimes people get lost in the detail, but. Equally, uh, I, mean, I don't think that happened to me, by the way. But but I, I, I do think it's an interesting point you make because I do think it, it was my assessment. In a, uh, I'm not wanting to be too critical here of Nothing anyone as in particular. As you like. But no, not not of you. But I was thinking that uh, that that was a criticism that I had of the CPRS process as it wound its way forward. It was so complicated and so long yeah. and so laborious that it seemed to me that it was at odds with the exigencies of politics almost. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like it. It was. It was like it was a bit like the vaccine rollout. It was waiting to be mugged by circumstances. Yeah, I think. I think that is a. 
look, a big, a big challenge for advocacy, and this is true whether you are a journalist, a writer, um, a barrister, or a politician, is how do you take complex issues and propositions and explain them simply but not simplistically, mm. you know? Now, the, the problem is, like, you know, one of the standard criticisms uh, made about me by, you know, particularly people on the right wing of the Liberal Party is that, you know, I was not attracted to slogans, you know, that, I mean, I, people would say, oh, you know, Malcolm will use 3,000 words when three words would suffice. Well, <laughs> the, the, the fact is that uh, it, once you reduce your, uh, uh, you know, political approach, your policy approach to just slogans that look good on the front page of a tabloid newspaper, you end up with uh, a very vacuous or possibly non-existent, sometimes regressive policy agenda. So you've got it, you know, you've, you've got to get the substance of the policy right, but you've got to actually be able to find a way to explain it. And that's the, that's the task of advocacy. And I, I might say, I've always felt that you know, when an advocate, again, regardless of the context, says, oh, you know, these people I'm talking to, you know, insert, you know, name, you know, party room, jury, judge, electorate, uh, don't understand what I'm saying, that's your fault as the mm. advocate. It's the advocate's job to get their message across. Who do you most admire in uh, global politics? I mean, who were the who were the people either that you dealt with, or maybe they're historical figures? But but who, who's just to give us a sense of kind of who your touchstones were in terms of um, uh, great performers? Well, look, I think I think the leader, the international leader that I was, um, you know, had I, I admired a great deal. I admired enormously and became close to and very uh, productively close to, from Australia's point of view, was the president of Indonesia, Joko Widodo. Uh, and, you know, that that relationship that, but, and both the, the relationship between him and his wife, Iriana, and, and me and Lucy, uh, you know, really saw Australian-Indonesian relations go to their best level Ever, you know, mm. and we were able to achieve a free trade deal, a comprehensive strategic partnership, and so forth. So that was it. But I also think Jokowi, as he's known, is a really critically important leader for our times. You know, he's the leader of the largest majority Muslim country in the world. It's our it's our closest neighbour, and it's the fourth or fifth biggest country in the world in terms of population. Uh, it's destined to be an economic giant. You know, demography is destiny. Uh, and Jokowi is trying to maintain Indonesia as a moderate democratic country. You know, he's got a lot of pressure from Islamic, Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, and he's, you know, but he, he says again and again, Indonesia demonstrates that Islam, democracy and moderation are synonymous, you know, are compatible, and uh, and that's that's you know critically important. But but there's so many other great leaders I had the honour of working with. I mean, you know, Obama, um, obviously, 
uh, John Key over in New Zealand and his successor, Jacinda Ardern, the British prime ministers I worked with, I you know, got to know well and worked very well with. You, you became quite close with uh, Angela Merkel as well, I believe. Yeah, well, yes, yes, uh, yes, I did. I mean, she is she is really one of you know this era's greatest leaders. She's provided enormous leadership and stability in Germany, uh, but equally, you know, in France, has been very fortunate to have Emmanuel Macron mm. as, as president, and indeed. Uh, Edouard Philippe as Prime Minister, you know, for so long as he was PM there, uh, both really special leaders. I mean, again, it's a, it's a, look, there's a long list. So we, you know, Shinzo Abe, uh, phenomenal uh, leader and, uh, you know, a very, you know, very important uh, partner uh, for Australia. But, I, you know, I could go on. You know, just <laughs> I don't think anyone will be offended by being left out, but there's lots of uh, there were you know lots of very uh, good people, uh, interesting people, um, and uh, you know the you know most of them are, are in my book, so people can read yes. about in that giant volume. Yeah. <laughs> now, Malcolm Fraser, a former Liberal Prime Minister, and John Hewson, former leader of the Liberal Party, both tended to drift out of the Liberal Party in their post-parliamentary careers. Both, I think, it's fair to say vecting to the left. Um, I assume you remain a member of the Liberal Party. Yeah, I am, yeah. Um, but after last week, I think it was last week, might have been 10 days ago, when um, this story broke that you'd been um, appointed by the New South Wales Cabinet to the New South Wales Net Zero Emissions and Clean Energy Board uh, and then effectively deappointed or removed before you'd even chaired one meeting after a backlash from the Nats and the and 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 perhaps some on the right pro coal figures on the right, they were particularly animated by some comments that you made about um, new coal mines or the, wanting a moratorium on new coal mines in the Hunter Valley. I suppose that raises a couple of questions with me. One of them is why bother with this party anymore? I mean, uh, you've been prime minister. That that was that was some that was some major level disrespect there. Uh, I would have yeah. thought for a former prime minister, uh, you were appointed by cabinet. It had been through Barilaro and others had had agreed to it, and then I think it makes it for the third time really that you've had a leadership position taken from you by by the sort of pro coal right in in the coalition. In this case, it wasn't a party leadership, but nonetheless, look ultimately. Uh, the most powerful political force in Australia is News Corporation. And when uh, the Murdoch, you know, tabloids and, and their, you know, uh, Sky News, their sort of Australian version of Fox News, uh, weighs into something like this, um, particularly if they're supported by the right-wing shock jocks on 2GB, the... Liberal Party crumbles, in New, particularly in New South Wales. I mean, look, there's no, I mean, and poor old Matt Keane, you know, had to go on into the Telegraph and on Sky News and say, oh, it wasn't media pressure that made me do it. I mean, it's just so sad. Mm. He's a nice guy, right? And I think he is sincere. But ultimately, the Liberal Party is held hostage by the that, you know, combination of the fossil fuel lobby Right wing, the right wing of the party, but it's the most potent single element in it is the Murdoch media. And as you know, they are 
they are very different to the other media organisations. They target people, they run political campaigns. They're more like propaganda than like, you know, what you and I would regard as traditional news reporting or journalism. And so, you know, that's that's it. But, I mean, if you think about it, if you just step back one second and you say, how insane is it, how utterly insane is it that to the, the disqualification for being chairman of a board to advise on reaching net zero emissions, the disqualification arises because the person involved, me in this case, has said that he does not support the unrestricted continued continued expansion of open-cut coal mining in the Hunter Valley and instead says there should be a pause uh, so that, uh, you know, we can both protect existing jobs and in, in mining and also in all the other industries and we should have a plan, you know, to manage uh, the, you know, economy in the Hunter, particularly in light of the fact that coal exports are obviously going to decline. But, you know, so what I said was that you would think uh, common sense and what you would expect a board like that, people on a board like that to, to, to you know, have an opinion about. But no, apparently anything less than the unrestricted abandonment, the utter abandonment of prime agricultural land to open-cut coal mining, anything less than that, is demonising coal and renders you ineligible to have a role involved with reaching net zero emissions. So it's just, it, 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 you know, it's a, it, it was kind of a, a sort of case study of how yeah. helpless the Liberal Party is as it's held hostage by this, uh, you know, right-wing, coal-hugging, climate-denying group and how out of step Australia is now internationally. I mean, this is the... This is the problem Morrison has got, you know, he, because he can get plaudits in the Daily Telegraph and Sky News and, you know, if he's, you know, or he can, you know, get nice comments from his admirers on Facebook, I suppose, if he doesn't even want to talk to journalists. But ultimately, the rest of the world, particularly the Biden administration, want Australia to step up and we're not. And, you know, this, is a, this puts us at enormous risk from carbon taxes at the frontier. It puts our workers at enormous risk because we're not preparing for this transition. I mean, do these guys seriously think we're going, you know, coal exports are going to keep rising? They're actually in decline. And and they're going to decline a lot faster than we've already seen. Well, this is a point that Richard Dennis has made uh, from the Australia Institute, not to be confused with the Australian Studies Institute with which uh, I'm connected, but... Um, He's also an adjunct professor at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and he's described you as the only liberal uh, who understands the economics of coal. The dispute that the rebellion that uh, arose after your comments about that um, that pause um, I guess showed us how incendiary uh, this whole issue is, how politically charged it is and how, mm. how unmoored it is to any sort of economic or mm. scientific logic. Dennis points out that most of the coal mines that are operating aren't operating at capacity and opening up new mines merely makes the ones that are already operating even less economic and we're talking about an aggregate demand situation that's, as you say, scheduled to go south anyway. So it, it just the, whole, the, the, the irrationality of this is staggering. 
Well, it is, and it involves politicians lying to workers. Yeah. You know, I mean, it basically involves people lying to workers. I mean, the truth is, and some of the unions and the hunter are aware, you know, aware of this. The truth is existing coal mines in the hunter have got more than enough capacity to meet all foreseeable demand. You don't need to open up any new ones. Any new mines or extensions of mines are only going to be at the expense of jobs in existing mines. So there's a real, you know, if you want to protect existing jobs, a pause is on new extensions and uh, approvals is certainly in the interests of the workers and the hunter. Uh, the the other point, of course, is that we know that the coal mining is going to come to an end. I mean, it has to. The you know, if we keep burning coal at the rate we are, we won't have a you know we'll have a, a planet that's uninhabitable. So we we sort of, we know that. So not everyone in the, the coalition actually agrees with that, by the way. Well, this is but this is the problem. This is the fundamental problem that mm. the the coalition is is. Uh, held hostage by that climate-denying uh, minority who simply do not accept the science. And, and you know, whether this is because of sort of crackpot theories uh, or whether it is because of self-interest and the coal lobby, it's hard to say. But, the, the you know, the problem is... Um, that it just it just bedevils the coalition and makes it incapable at the federal level of providing leadership, national leadership on climate and energy. And, you know, as you say, I mean, I lost my job as Liberal leader twice over it, but the, the bottom line interesting thing is they, they sort of don't care if it results in an election loss. I mean, you know, the, the, my overthrow in August 2018... Uh, was devastating for the coalition. I mean, it was a, it was a, like it wasn't a leadership change that was welcomed. And you know, Morrison's win the following year was despite the coup, and was you know, as we know, was largely because Labor blew it. But you know, in a two horse race, you've always got a chance. But so the recklessness of these characters uh, is extraordinary. But you know, they're back as long as they're provided with air cover. And support from Murdoch, I think they'll continue doing it. I mean, you just cannot, there is a reluctance to acknowledge that the most powerful political organisation in Australia is News Corporation and that it is controlled by an American family whose interests are not, if they ever have been, uh, extent, coextensive with our own. So you talk about foreign influence, you've got it right there. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. 
Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, just before the break, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, you mentioned, uh, among other comments, uh, carbon tariffs at the border as one of the possible risks. How how genuine is that as a as a possibility, as a, as a threat to Australia, that other countries could start putting tariffs on uh, on our exports uh, yeah. if they are um, uh, you know if they carry a, a um, an unpaid for carbon component? Well, look, well, it's it's very real. I mean, the uh, Europeans have said they're going to do it for a start, so mm. that's very real. Uh, and the Democrats have certainly canvassed it. Um, and I think it's it's not yet Biden's policy, but um, you know, politicians are always attracted to a bit of protectionism. Mm. You know, it's always nice to protect local jobs and businesses. And but if you can do it. Uh, and at the same time claim you're saving the planet, that is a fantastic uh, double whammy. So yeah, that's good. Local... That's, a, that's a moral basis for something that's yeah. also popular and brings in revenue. Correct, exactly. Now, the so, uh, you know, how, I mean, what the Europeans are basically saying is that countries that do not have a, um, you know, a commitment, a real Pro commitment program to get to net zero, uh, they will uh, penalise. That's basically what they're saying. Uh, and of course, Australia is a real standout here because, you know, we can't say, oh, we're a struggling developing country in Africa, you know, with hardly any emissions. You know, we are a big per capita emitter. We're a very wealthy developed nation. We actually have the means the natural endowment and the technologies uh, to, as your university very well understands, to actually get to uh, net zero or, you know, frankly, zero emission electricity and, uh, in you know, following that uh, net zero across the economy. So, so we can do it. In fact, it's actually easier for us to do it than it is, say, for the Brits, to, to be honest. So the, the I, I think we should... You know, this is this is a this is a real a real risk. I mean, we we can't sort of keep on trying to operate like a sort of a Trumpian, you know, ex government in exile in the antipodes. <laughs> I mean, the Trump's gone, the climate deniers are out of power in Washington, um, and people look at Australia increasingly globally and say, "What is wrong with you? You just had." You know, twelve million hectares burnt out the summer. You know, last summer. Uh, uh, you know, in twenty nineteen twenty. I mean, how much more do you need to know before you take this challenge seriously? Uh, so anyway, it's a. I think it's a increasingly urgent. And to be honest, lining up with you know Brazil and Saudi Arabia to frustrate global climate action, which is what Angus Taylor did last time he was at a COP. Uh, is just not going to be welcome. 
So they've got to execute some deft footwork. They, they certainly do, and there's a bit of that uh, going on. It might be soft shoe shuffling rather than anything all that substantial at the moment. It's hard to tell. But Australia, as you say, is caught in this kind of pincer now between our two greatest allies, Britain and the US, are really pushing forward, leading the world, trying to sure. cajole the world into action. And it's no doubt they've got Australia in mind as well, expecting us to um, to make some sort of effort. We see Scott Morrison inching towards net zero, some sort of commitment, you know, mm. sort of words, uh, there's a bit of sophistry going on here, uh, you know, preferably by 2050, these kinds of things, but he's got some philosophical problem with targets apparently. Um, do, do, there is an expectation, at least in the commentariat and, and, and around Parliament House, that he is going to announce this commitment before the Glasgow COP talks uh, later this year, and of course Biden himself is hosting uh, climate talks just in a couple of weeks' time uh, to really ratchet up the pressure as well. Do you think that is where, th- where this is going? I mean, what's your read on it? Well, look, at, look, it should. I mean, I, I was surprised that Scott, for example, did not reinstate the National Energy Guarantee after the election. I mean, he's politically, look, he knows it's good policy. He was certainly a supporter of it when he was treasurer. Uh, His political capital was the highest it will ever be. And he could have done that. But it gives you an indication of how trenchant the opposition to uh, climate action is within the coalition that he wasn't able to do it. And he just obviously thought, well, these bastards will do the same to me as they did to Malcolm, Mm. you know. And so... Um, he's, uh, you know, and then you look at the New South Wales government, which has some good policies on paper, but, you know, they've just demonstrated in the last 10 days how, you know, they can't fight the right-wing, you know, coal lobby with their friend, their friends in the Murdoch media, et cetera. So, so it is a, there is a political challenge, but we will start to pay a price in terms of trade, uh, in terms of global influence, um, and also, of course, there's a very real price to be paid because you're not acknowledging the transition. You see, the logical thing to do in the Hunter, just you know, as getting back to the incident of a few weeks ago now, is to say, right, we've got uh, coal export volumes are in decline, and we know that's not going to change. We've got existing mines with existing people, you know, existing jobs. Uh, that are under capacity. So uh, let's not make the situation worse. You know, if you if you open up a new mine and employ a hundred people there, those hundred jobs are going to be at the expense of a hundred jobs somewhere else, given the volumes are not increasing. So pause, protect the existing jobs, but then plan for the transition. I mean, plan at a basic level. Have you got enough money to rehabilitate that lunar landscape devastation we've seen? I mean, it's very clear to me that we have not. I mean, mm. I, the, 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 the problem is going to be these companies will go broke or they will cut to the end of their mine life and these foreign-owned companies will be found to have, you know, $2 left on their balance sheet. And who's going to pay for the rehabilitation? Presumably Australian taxpayers. Um Who's planning a clean energy future for the hunter? I mean, I've been talking about it a lot, 
But the minute you say that, you get jumped on by the coal lobby who say you're demonising coal. I mean, it is, they're hmm. not just in denial of climate change, they're in denial of reality and they're in denial of their responsibility to plan for the future. So, you know, you would have seen the Telegraph and, you know, Barilaro and so forth saying, oh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's an elitist from Sydney, utterly out of touch. His views are, you know, despised by people in the Upper Hunter. Well, there was a poll published, I think, yesterday, which showed that a majority of National Party voters, and indeed a majority across the electorate, agreed with exactly what I was saying. Mm. So, you know, so who's out of touch? Yeah, and, and and I've seen that even coal workers, when polled, often will be saying they might want to keep their jobs, but they're not looking for their kids to go into those jobs. They're, they're, they're looking for their kids to go into jobs with a future. There's a sort of a recognition yeah. there. Well, do you, I mean, do you really think, look, if you, if you are a, you know, if you're a, a 35-year-old coal miner and you've got a couple of little kids, do you really think that when they are your age, will still be exporting coal from the Hunter Valley? Of course not. I mean, you'd have to have rocks in your head. You'd have to have coal in your head to think that. <laughs> it's clearly everyone knows that's not the case. I mean, you know, they've all got solar panels on their roofs. They know that there's a technological change. And, and so you would think that the government would be saying, we recognise this, we understand this, don't worry, we're going to protect your jobs for as long as there is, you know, demand for them. We're going to manage things to protect existing jobs. But the big story is we have got a plan that's going to ensure there are well-paid, good jobs in clean energy in the future. But that that is heresy. You know, that is, that, that is, that is uh, you talk about cancel culture. News Corp and the coal lobby treat any acknowledgement of that reality as, uh, you know, treasonous conduct mm, mm. and jump on it. And yet the treason might actually be uh, much more uh, much more obviously attached to uh, leading people down a path that obviously you know has no long-term future, and we've seen Correct. so much of that in Australian politics. Do you think we need to – I've written about this myself uh, a few months ago, but do we think we need to – Get imaginative about this, front-footed about it, and say to those those coal-dependent communities um, that w- what we're asking them to do is be at the hinge point of a national transition, and therefore the nation will carry that cost. They won't be personally out of pocket for it. So, you know, houses that would, for example, decline in value if there's a sudden contraction or abandonment of that industry. We'll buy their houses off them. We'll put them into, you know, we've set up a a future fund that actually drives this transition so that the individuals involved aren't personally disadvantaged. Well, Mark, I, 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 look, I, that, that's, that is, I'm sure that's a well-intentioned thought, but I, I've got a bigger and better vision for communities like the Hunter than that. The what you need to do is say we are going to ensure there are new industries, clean energy industries, which will replace 
burning and mining coal. I agree with that, but people and, haven't and been buying that story. No, really. no, but the reason the reason they haven't been buying it is nobody's been selling it. Right. There is literally no planning going on. Now, but you could do both anyway, could you not? Well, of course you can. But 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 you know, the truth of the matter is that you have uh in the electricity, you know, energy network, the most expensive part of it actually is all of the transmission. Correct. You yeah. know, the poles and wires. And, and of course, the distribution, you know, at the more local level. Um, There are massive transmission assets going into the Hunter Valley. I mean, so as the coal-fired generators shut down, the Liddell is shutting down in, you know, a couple of years now, um, well, we we should be replacing them with big solar farms. We should be using some of the local topography, there's, you know, a number of features that would enable you to have pumped hydro there, long-term storage. So in other words, as coal-fired generation fades out, you bring into play clean generation, which of course will then enable you to get into any uh, clean energy-intensive industries, you know, clean aluminium, you know, uh, sort of clean hydrogen, green hydrogen, you know, green steel. But these require some leadership and planning and imagination. And regrettably, any politician who talks about that is at risk of being accused of being anti-coal. Well, I mean, it's not, the, the, it, you know, this is the stupidity of it. I mean, I'm not uh, anti-coal or pro-solar and wind because they're just things they don't have any moral qualities. They've got physical characteristics. And the fact is the world is, is going to and has to burn a lot less coal, and that is going to happen. I mean, it doesn't matter if everybody in Australia thought like uh, Matt Canavan and John Barillaro and Barnaby Joyce, it wouldn't matter. The decisions about our uh, export coal business are being made overseas. It's like that great you know, line of Kevin Rudd's once when he was criticised for travelling too much as foreign minister and he said, in my experience, most foreigners live overseas. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, um, I think Kep Enderby once said that uh, he, he got a, he received, I know he said most exports come, imports come from overseas, I think. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. That's, yes. that's right. So, so the decisions about, you know, the, the level of demand for Australian coal exports remarkably are going to be made not in Australia. So the so I, I guess this is a, a question of planning because the problem is uh, if you don't, you will end up with a very, very depressed uh, area in the Hunter uh, and you will end up with a landscape that has been devast- absolutely devastated. And just, just encourage anyone to have a look at Google Maps and, you know, and have a look at these open-cut mines. Uh you know, there's. I mean, there are there are voids, you know, holes. In other words, voids created in the Hunter by open cut mining the size of Sydney Harbour, six thousand hectares. Think about it. Hmm. Yeah, I've flown over yeah. it. It is. It's, it's staggering. Uh, to, staggering to, to see. It? Yeah, oh, and very. Disturbing. Well, you see. So, 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 assuming that can be remediated, which is a big question, rehabilitated. Uh, if it's not and the money is simply not there to do it at present, uh, you are going to be left with the worst of all worlds. You won't have the jobs. 
and you'll have a, a wasted landscape. Now, you mentioned before uh, Scott Morrison and the NEG. That raised a couple of things in my mind. That is the, the National uh, the National Energy Guarantee. Um, you uh, had that policy. You developed it. Uh, uh, it was a, an attempt to sort of, in a sense, depoliticise this supercharged area and come up with a rational policy. Mm. It was, I think, widely regarded uh, by... Well, it, had, it had the widest support of any energy policy in, in my political lifetime anyway. And you had it through the party room, I think, about twice. You had, yep. certainly had robust discussions of the party room and, and, and had the support of the party room, albeit that there were, you know, the Craig Kellys and a few others who were threatening to cross the floor if you took it to the parliament. In the end, you didn't take it to the parliament. Well, yes. It's Look, what happened was in the last week, and this was, you know, obviously I didn't realise this at the time, but this was obviously not unconnected with the you know the tumultuous events that, that then occurred planned mm. it was clear that a significant number of people on the back bench were not going to vote for it and so we had a cabinet meeting and in fact uh mark uh, uh michael mccormick actually said he wasn't confident he get he could get the nats to vote for it any longer so we had a cabinet meeting and the question was, do we just put the bill in uh, and run the risk of it being voted down? But Labor would have supported it. I mean, no, they didn't say uh, that at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the 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 view was the view was that we just couldn't be sure of that. Mm. The temptation for Bill Shorten to defeat the government on the floor of the House and demand an election was would have been pretty overwhelming. And so we didn't abandon the policy, you know, at all. All that we said was we were not going to put the bill in that week and that we were going to, you know, uh, see how we could, you know, manage the numbers, talk to more people, et cetera. So it was, it was a stay, not a – it was a, uh, a pause rather than an abandonment. Um, and, and, you know, I think, look uh, – that 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 was a decision that was taken. It was taken by the cabinet. It wasn't taken solely by me. I think it was probably the right call, because if I had said to the cabinet, "No, I insist it goes through," I think even some of my good friends, like Christopher and Julie, would have said, "Oh, come on, you know, Malcolm, seriously, this is this is this is crazy, crazy stuff." So, so we had to. So we. So that was that. But you know, again, what. What I assumed was that once I was gone, and that was clearly the you know, main objective of the coup was to get rid of me and replace me with Dutton, uh, the, once that was happened, I assumed that the NEG would revive, but instead Morrison was Morrison who actually abandoned it as a policy. Is it your suspicion that he, uh, I mean, he obviously needed to garner some right-wing votes to mm. put together his majority against Dutton, um, perhaps that was part of the deal. Could, it could easily have been, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, having said that, I mean, he could have uh, – I mean, I, after the election in May of 2019, he, he had the gr highest level of political capital he would ever have. And he – and listen, Scott's, you know, you can make all the criticisms of him in the world, but he is – He's steeped in politics. I mean, he's more, you know, he's, he's one of his weaknesses is he's, you know, 90% tactics and no strategy, but, you know, he's, but he understands mm. the evanescence of 
you know, political capital, and he knows that that was that if, that was the time when he could sort of do anything. Well, speaking of missed opportunities, did do you now concede that you would have been better off going to an election earlier than you did after taking over from Abbott? Um, no, I'm not. I mean, I, look, it's a fair fair point. It's a, it's an absolutely legitimate argument. I I think it would have been a mistake. Uh, the truth is. We had we were completely unprepared, you know. We didn't have any new, we didn't have a set of policies. We did, the party didn't have any money. The party was completely broke, uh, literally. I mean, couldn't even afford to pay Tony Nutt's salary for a, the first few months as uh, general, you know, as, uh, mm. as federal director. Um, and I feared that the you know the bounce that I'd had, which was a very big one, um, would evaporate very quickly if people thought I was just taking advantage of it, you know, in that way. I mean, Theresa May was tempted into an early election, you may remember, yeah. a few years back and had a similar experience. Well, she was tempted into it and, you know, nearly lost to... Corbyn. Um, Corbyn. Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. <laughs> staggering which Staggering to think of. Which, which is staggering, yeah. So, but listen, you may well, you may well be right, Um that was certainly uh, my analysis at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You, Mark, you, you, you may, you may well be right. I mean, what, what hurt us badly in the period from the end of 2015 to the budget was the perception that we were sort of thinking aloud about economic policy and tax policy, and a lot of that was, you know, as I've described in my book, and I don't think it's, anyone really argues with it, uh, was that rather odd way Morrison kept on front running and thinking aloud in the media, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it made us look very, it caused a lot of problems, made us look very flaky. I, I, it's not, my view is that you, with policy, you confer in private, you know, kick it around as much as you can in private and then announce it when you've got a decision. You don't sort of fly kites constantly. But, you know, that's Scott. That's Scott's view, but I think it did us enormous damage. Yeah. There was a lot of, as you say, there was a lot of optimism and just a sense of sheer bloody relief, frankly, at yeah, the end of the Abbott period because it was yeah, so sure. so uh, idiosyncratic and ideological, you know, the knighting mm. of Prince Philip uh, and so forth. I mean, so many things. Um, and you've, you've, you've addressed the, the neg, and I accept that there are, you know, people can second guess you on a number of things, but a lot of that optimism was also about you know the the installation of a genuinely moderate prime minister, someone who mm. was in the centre ground with with the majority of the population. Is there any policy area that that you've um, on in hindsight look at now and think, I wish I'd been a bit more front footed? And I'll, I'll just give you a couple. Of, you can you can just sort of mm. yes or no them if you yeah. like. Um, we've dealt with the with the neg. The religious freedom uh, issue was one which you, uh, I think, gave comfort to uh, to the right after the same sex marriage vote. Uh, and um, oh, I, I wouldn't say I gave comfort to them. I I appointed Philip Ruddick to have an inquiry, knowing that Philip's inquiry would come to nothing right. much. <laughs> so, right. So well, happily, I mean, Philip, happily, it all did Philip, in the end. I knew that I knew that Philip took the view. That there wasn't really a problem to be solved, but right, you know, right. I was, I was, uh, I, I, I mean, I. When I say come to nothing, I mean, that's a bit strong. But what I mean is, I, I didn't. I honestly didn't think 
there was a problem to be solved and it was essentially, you know, it was just a way of calming an element in the party room. This is yeah. what you do all the time. Yeah, no, I understand that. And the same-sex but, but, marriage... But I didn't, I, didn't refor- I didn't pass any laws or articulate any new policies in that area at all. No, no, I appreciate that. Uh, the Republic was one area also where you'd have obviously had a very high profile. You, you sort of uh, pretty, pretty unambiguously put that on, on the back burner. Well, I, I, that's not true. I'm again, I'm not trying to be difficult, but but uh, my view on the Republic has been for over 20 years that after the 99 referendum, the next opportunity for us to really have another go at this is after the end of the Queen's reign. I still hold that view. I wish it wasn't right, you know, but I'm Nothing has happened since then. So that, that it was is the view f- I so had for a long time. Yeah, no, I accept that. I wasn't saying that, that you'd promised otherwise. It was more that there was an expectation, I suppose, that, you know, because we, we had for the first time, I think probably ever, we had mm. two leaders, the leader, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition. We know that's a, a, an absolute prerequisite for any sort of successful change to the Constitution. Well, when you had Rudd both and Republicans. Me as op- when you, no, when Rudd was PM and I was opposition leader, uh, I suppose you had that a Republican leading both sides of the parliament, but yeah, that's true. That's true. But 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 I think but I look. I think the 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 thing is, uh, you know, I never backed away from my republicanism. I you know gave a couple of speeches, not many, about it. But I just I honestly don't think the you know I, I just don't. I think it you you literally could make no progress will make no progress until after the end of the Queen's reign. And that's going to be a completely different landscape. And you, you hopefully have an environment then when people will say, well, you know, uh, you know, God saved the Queen, but she's no longer with us, and we now have to look at this, these arrangements again. All right. Well, look, uh, we're getting short of time, so I just want to quickly cycle through a couple of other things. Just one more in that in that category, and that is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Do you, on reflection, regret the government's rather quick dismissal of the suggestion of the voice as a you know potential third chamber and one with a limited franchise, or do you still take that view? No, I still take that view. Uh, I mean, I I just um, I don't think it's a good idea. I, I think all of our national you know constitutional um, assemblies, if you like. Should be open to all Australians. I, I just don't. I just don't agree. I don't agree with the idea. Uh, so I also don't think it's got any prospect of being successful in a referendum. But but the you know it's um, yeah it's, it's 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 I guess it's an example of my genuine republicanism. You know I do think the the only qualification for any elected office in Australia should be Australian citizen, mm. <laughs> which is. Which, or indeed, unelected office, which is why I think our head of state should be an Australian citizen. Indeed. Now, look, I can't get, let you go without, uh, and I could take up that uh, debate. I might say because I don't fully share that view, but uh, yeah, but no, I, it's, I, it's I accept. Fine. It's, it's not legitimate. compulsory to agree with me, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't let you go without just raising the, the you know the issue that has dominated politics really for the last few months: the issue of the treatment of women in politics. Yeah, and the last. 24 hours we've seen the Christine Holgate 
removal from Australia Post uh, issue uh, emerged again as she is alleging that she was, well, she's saying saying that she was um, felt humiliated by the Prime Minister's uh, effectively calling for her removal um, from the House of Representatives floor. She says she was bullied. What what's your assessment of all of this? I mean, you obviously took a very strong stand in the party room around the time of the Barnaby Joyce affair and mm. uh, and you know the so called bonk ban as it was as it became rather unattractively known. But it's really shown that this issue of the mistreatment of women and the lack of respect for women has it runs quite deep. Oh, it does. Look, there's no question that uh, the way Morrison uh, treated Christine Holgate was disgraceful. It was horrible, misogynistic bullying. And he can't spin his way out of it because we all saw it. He did it on the floor of the house. So I mean, he just it's, it's needs to the... apologise. Of course he does, yeah. And, I mean, the truth is that the dumping on Christine Holgate was, it was just, it was, it was so dreadful, so appalling. I mean, the... The you know whatever view you take of Cartier watches, she basically gave a group of people, you know five thousand a bonus worth five thousand dollars each in the form of a watch, um, amounting to a relatively small amount of money in the scheme of things at Australia Post. After they'd pulled off an incredible deal, which improved Australia Post's revenues and the revenues of their licensees and franchisees enormously. So. You know, it was literally, it's just, it was, it was a classic uh, effort by politicians and in particular the Prime Minister to show that they were, you know, good sort of ochre Australians, none of this sort of fancy Cartier watch stuff, you know, we're good battlers, you know, et cetera. Uh, that was what it was. It was just, and, and, and who, who paid the price? A really good chief executive who was driven, as she said, almost to taking her own life. And why wouldn't she be? I mean, the, you know, like, I mean, I've been put through the ringer plenty of times politically and, and uh, I, I, I've witnessed it and so forth, but I'm, I was a politician. You know, I've got a very thick hide. This is a woman who had, you know, has been a chief executive, had never experienced treatment like that. And, in, and you'd think the government would have said or the minister would have said, and, I mean, Fletcher's got a lot to answer for too, you'd think they would have said, look, Christine, you know, between us that the watches probably weren't the greatest idea, but don't worry, we'll back you in. At the end of the day, it was a number of bonuses worth 30 grand. It was within your authority. It's not a big deal. Don't worry, we'll back you in. And that would have been uh, the... Uh, that would have been the the appropriate, the honourable, uh, dare I say it, the, um, you know, the, uh, <laughs> well, there's a great old Yiddish expression of a mensch, which is it means a man, but it's, you, women can be menches too. And it basically is the standard of somebody who is responsible, honourable, respectful, a good person. But, you know, uh, a mensch would have defended her Instead, she was thrown under the bus all for the sake of a, you know, tabloid headline. So the only thing Morrison can do, I mean, I, he should, they should apologise to her. Uh, they should compensate her. I think they should reinstate her as CEO. Now, that may 
no longer be feasible, but it's that's certainly what they should have done. That's what I called for uh, last year and have done so since. I, I think it's I think it's it's actually one of the worst bits of bullying I've seen in politics. Uh, I mean, obviously, the bullying of Gillard was has to be the worst, I would think. But but um, of course, she was a politician, and you know, and as we saw, Julia was capable of giving giving as good as she got, right? So uh, it was it was terrible, and and it and it goes to this whole problem of disrespect of women. I mean, you know, one of the wisest things my very wise wife has has ever said, which I've quoted repeatedly over the years, is not all disrespect of women leads to violence against women, but that's where all violence against women begins. And so, you know, this is an issue of respect uh, and that bullying was just part that bully, you know, Morrison's bullying of hers and the, the horrible treatment she had is all of a piece with a culture of disrespect and abuse of women uh, in politics. Now, I called it out when I was PM and I made changes to address it, but it's there's a lot more work to be done. There certainly is. Malcolm Turnbull, it's been absolutely terrific talking to you today. Thanks so much for giving us your time. I, I would have loved to have you know, got your views on, on the Biden administration and a range of other subjects as well, but um, time does not permit uh, on this occasion. It's been a really great honour to have you on. Well, we could have a subsequent sausage. Uh, well, I certainly appreciate that. That's uh, We'll take you up on that offer, absolutely. All right, it's lovely to see you. Thanks very much, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Because this episode is late this week, we will not be having a Democracy Sausage Extra uh, on Friday as we normally do, and so we'll be back at the normal time of Tuesday of next week. So until then... <laughs> 